Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot Esports Podcast Network. I'm Ahmad Khan of Tom's Guide. Earlier this month, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing filed a suit against Activision Blizzard for labor abuses, particularly towards women, that included sexual harassment, mistreatment, and unequal pay and work disparities. One incident led to the suicide of a female employee. Dot Esports' Hunter Cook sat down with me last week to discuss the early revelations in full, so check that out if you haven't already. Since then, more information has come to light. This includes further pay disparities for women over men, crude remarks and harassment at the Blizzard booth during the Black Hat Cybersecurity Conference, men walking into breastfeeding rooms, a walkout, and a statement by CEO Bobby Kotek that described the company's initial response as tone deaf. Joining me today is Irene Scholl Tadevosian, a labor and employment attorney and senior associate of Nixon Peabody LLP. She's also vice president of the Esports Bar Association. Irene, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Maud. Um, so let's kind of st- start at the top. And I'm really curious about some of the disjointed messaging that Activision Blizzard has had as this case has been uh, going through public discourse. Uh, what can you tell us about Activision's, Activision Blizzard's kind of evolving responses, uh, it seems, seemingly day by day? Well, first of all, I think it highlights the importance of having a unified message, especially mm-hmm. when there's a uh, such a public um, relations issue with the company and a lawsuit. Um, and so the number one issue this highlights, right, is that you need to have consistent messaging and make sure all of management is on board with the messaging that's going on. Uh, in terms of a disjointed response, I mean, I don't know what's happening internally, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, it's clear that uh, you know, any company going through this is is needs to have um, a moment where it reflects on what's going on and how to respond. The one of the responses from one of the executives was more defensive, and you can understand that any company who takes pride in what it does and how it treats its employees is going to be defensive to a certain extent, right? So that's how I took that response. It was a defensive knee-jerk response to what was happening because most, you know, most publishers in the past two to five years have been taking measures to ensure to curtail any type of uh, disparity or discrimination in the workplace or uh, culture, cultural Mm. issues. Um, The other response was more sensitive to employee concerns that were coming out, you know, and we'll get it as, you know, we'll get into the issues of legal versus um, just employee relation issues. But the other response was more um, making sure that the company and its employees understood that the company was listening to them and was willing to take measures um, to address any issues that may uh, exist, whether it's a cultural or a legal issue, right? So it's a difficult place to be in. And I think that's where the different responses are coming from. But again, it highlights the importance of making sure that when you are giving a public response that everyone's on board and understands what the response is going to be and Mm. the messaging is clear. You know, one one thing that I found curious, and I guess I also just want your opinions on, is how the company might be parsing its, and I don't know if this is the right word to use, but it's more morality versus liability. So, you know, on one hand, Activision Blizzard wants to be on the right side of this, correct? Like, it doesn't want to be at odds with its staff or the rest of the gaming industry, but admitting fault can also cause other legal hurdles, right? Um, you know, when you look at some statements, it might come off as dismissive, while you know, the, Bobby Kotick's the one that he the one that he gave to the uh, 
you publish on the investment portal was very direct. So, you know, how does a company that's going through this uh, huge, I, I, I can't call it anything other than like a PR disaster, uh, balance a, the, I guess, the moral face versus the, without making itself more liable? Yeah, it, it's a balance of making sure that, you know, the, the big thing here is, is making sure that your employees understand that, that you're, you're willing to listen to them. You are going to, if there are any issues, you're going to take action um, and that you have essentially what is an open door policy. I mean, any company who operates uh, wants to make sure that its employees feel comfortable at work. I mean, that should be every company's goal. That's not, you know, doesn't always happen, but you want your employees to feel comfortable at work in every sense, because when they're mm -hmm. comfortable, you have the most productive and happy workforce, and that just leads to better results for a company. Um, with that said, you know, the balancing act you have to do in terms of not admitting liability, I mean, that's fine. You can be responsive to your employees and not uh, impact a lawsuit as long as you're not admitting liability, right? And you know the the we have to take a step back here. The, this is just a complaint. These are allegations. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read the complaint, you know the allegations itself. Yeah, it, it seems terrible, but we don't know the facts of this case yet. Those are just allegations, and we don't know how they're connected to one another, and how everything connects together, and what investigations were done beforehand, what the results of those were, what the accuser said, what the response was. I mean, there's so many things that go into play here that it's it's a little premature, you know, for anyone to come out and say they're 100% in the wrong or not. And so any company who deals with such issues has to, you are right, play a delicate dance. Um, but in doing so, they have to make sure that they're also heeding their employee concerns. And whether there's liability here on the legal side or not, the fact that your employees, employees may be upset over certain issues, you have to hear them out and try to address those issues as much as you can and keep a pulse on your workforce, right? Um, and uh, that seems to be maybe where uh, there might be a disconnect is that, um, there needs to be a better pulse on what's going on in the workforce. And I don't know everything that Activision Blizzard has done. It seems that they've already put in some measures to, to, and mechanisms for employees to voice concerns. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to evaluate this as an outsider based on just allegations, um, but it certainly seems that they've put in things, things into place that were designed to do that, whether more needs to be done is, is the other question. And it seems if the employees are, if there's a number of employees that are still unhappy about this, then maybe more needs to be done. You know, I, I do like that you brought in some of your lawyerly prognostication here because you do say that, you know, these are allegations and that, you know, none of this is necessarily binding fact. I think the reason that maybe the gaming community or the public or even employees are taking this with such seriousness is that the lawsuit is coming directly from the DFEH. And, you know, when reading a report by Noah Smith, uh, who a freelancer of the Washington Post, when he spoke to experts, um, he found that, you know, the DFEH only really takes on a handful of cases. So what really, I guess, you know, impress upon us, what really is the significance of the DFEH putting its name on this case? Yeah, no, and that's a good point. That is significant. Uh, the DFEH doesn't typically file lawsuits, uh, or when it does, they're very few. And e it's an even fewer number in which the DFEH uh, brings the lawsuit itself versus bringing the lawsuit on behalf of a, a specific named 
person or persons. Mm. Um, So what it indicates to me is that the DFEH is paying really close attention to the gaming industry um, and issues that arise within the industry. Mm. Um, And in this case, the defendant is Activision Blizzard, but it could have been someone else in the gaming industry. Um, And so it it just indicates to the entire gaming and esports industry that this administrative agency is taking these allegations very seriously uh, and is is looking to make an example. Now, how good of an example that will be or not depends on what happens in the case or what the actual facts are of the case versus the allegations. Um, But that's the importance of the DFAH's involvement to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of gaming companies, uh, Activision Blizzard is not the only company that's, you know, uh, been met with accusations of poor workplace environment. Um, you know, most famously, Ubisoft is going through its own, or has been going through its own episode throughout 2020, as well as Riot Games. Uh, you know, as uh, when it comes to the gaming industry in general, what do you think conversations are uh, are like at these boardrooms where if they're seeing that the DFEH could go after a company as large as Activision Blizzard, do you think that it's forcing a a large shift in how uh, it deals with its employees? Yes. So the gaming industry generally has been facing a lot of these issues the last, I would say, five years, but particularly the last two to three years Mm -hmm. uh, where you saw the Me Too movement in the esports and gaming community. Um, Lots of uh, gaming companies are dealing with these type of issues, whether it's involving their own employees or maybe independent contractors that they contract with. Right. Mm. Um, And so there's a whole bunch of things going on in the industry. And, you know, we advise a number of clients, uh, have advised a number of clients on these issues. I mean, what really needs to happen across the board right now is if if you're a company and if you're sitting in the C-suite level is uh, an internal investigation, whether you have... um, allegations or not if i was a gaming company i'd wanted i'd want to get a pulse on my workforce and see if what um you know allegations exist exist within my own company um because that's where you start if you get a pulse on what your employees are telling you you can um circumvent a potential lawsuit whether it has merit or not you or at least do your best to do so by understanding what your employees are saying. Now, um, if your employees, for example, think that the company has a bro culture, how and and no one is, let's say, complaining to your HR or upper management that that's how they feel, well, then you can't take any corrective steps to try to change that, right? right. And so sometimes you have to be proactive, and that would be um, what uh, I would think would be the best way to get ahead of issues like this. Cause you know, at this point that this has been an issue at, um, uh, in the industry generally. And so if you want to protect your company in the best way possible is to be proactive, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty common for most companies inside or outside of gaming to have things like pulse surveys, quarterly surveys with their employees, where they, see what their employees think about the company, anonymous surveys where they try to see how they're doing um, and how they can do better. Um, I think those tools are really great. And especially right now in the gaming industry, those tools should be utilized uh, across the board. 
You know, we've been talking a lot on the employer side, but what about the employee side? I mean, as have you heard any rumblings of employees for any of these companies wanting to form a, a, a union to create the mechanisms that can help ensure the protection of staff? There's been rumblings about unionization in the gaming and esports industry for the past, I would say, two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but number one, uh, unionizing is um, one, all of the, you have to get 50% of the employees you're looking to unionize, 50% plus of the employees you're looking to unionize to agree to be unionized. Yeah. And then two, unionization could be a good tool for employees to get their voice heard, but it could also not be a good tool. Um, There's many pros and cons to unionization, including the fact that union members have to pay into the union. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's all sorts of mechanisms involved with that, but a union could be a good thing depending on the scenario and it could not be a good thing. Um, But the process for unionization takes time. You have to have an election. Again, you have to have over 50% of the employees looking to be unionized agree to be unionized. Um, And then once you do that, and let's say there's a a union elected, then you have the terms and conditions of the employment essentially put in a contract, which is the collective bargaining agreement. And you have then a very more formal structure, which could be great in some instances, and then it could be very inflexible in other instances. Um, And so, for example, if you had a performance review process or a discipline process that was in place, a collective bargaining agreement makes that very formalized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so some employees don't like that. Some do. Um, There's parts of collective bargaining that can go both ways that employees like and dislike or, you know, it really depends on what the employees want. If if the employees feel that they're getting what they want without the unionization process, then they likely won't resort to it. Um, Mm -hmm. If they feel like they're not that the union is the only way to get what they need, then that that's when you typically have, you know, uh, conversations of a union forming in the election process going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, you know, a mythology around unions uh, within American culture, American labor culture. And, you know, it was definitely spearheaded a lot by uh, Bernie Sanders during his presidential run. But if you, you know, listen to, let's say, Scott Galley from NYU Stern School of Business, he's been very critical of unions, saying that as a force in the labor market, it hasn't done a very good job as the, um, as management has always just been able to overstep unions again and again and again. And, you know, are there other alternatives to unions that you, that you think might be better? I mean, is it having employees, like giving employees like one or two seats on the board or something like that? Uh, well, I will disclose that I'm a management side attorney, so <laughs> <laughs> my opinion is necessarily biased, right? Um, I mean, we, you know, we are retained by companies um, to do work against unions. Uh, as I said, there's pros and cons to unionization, but you can get um, much of what you want without a union, as long as the employees come together in many mm-hmm. instances and the company's willing. Met, at, at this day and age, most companies, I'll say generally, want to do right by their employees. And they want, like I said, they want their employees to be happy and they make um, internal mechanisms to make sure that their employee voices are heard. So, for example, many companies have employee relation branches formal branches where they have people in those positions 
focused on addressing employee concerns. You have companies forming town halls, um, hotlines, uh, you know, all sorts of things to make sure that their employees' um, concerns are heard and addressed. So it doesn't have to go through the unionization process for you, for employees to to get their voice heard and their concerns addressed. And you mentioned one other thing, which was, you know, do you have employees on boards? That's a very, I mean, as a management attorney, that's really dangerous, but there's other things you can create for employees to be involved in other ways, such that their, again, voice is heard, whether it's on an employee relations committee or some other mechanism. Can I follow up on that? I mean, so why is it, in your opinion, dangerous, whereas in Germany, I believe legally, the employees need to have... uh... A, a place on the board. And it seems, I mean, I, I don't follow the cor- German corporations very closely, but um, for all intents and purposes, it seems that it's running okay over there. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't uh, speak at a turn um, because the thought is, so the the executives of the company have a fiduciary duty to the company. Mm, yes, yes. So yes, they yes. must ask act in the best interest of the company. If you put an employee on, and I think there's been some case examples uh, that I've looked into in the past, but can't remember right now, in the United States where that hasn't worked out, um, mm. the employees have, unless they're a high-level executive or manager, don't have that necessarily the same fiduciary duty. So their loyalty might lie elsewhere, not in the best interest of the company, but looking at other things or, you know, let's say, I don't want to say this of all employees, but it could be a selfish pursuit, right? You want to get, let's say, let's say you wanted more compensation. And to do that, you instituted more compensation to employees, but you didn't look at how that might impact the rest of the company, right? Right. It might not make sense elsewhere. So that's where, you know, you could have something like that butting head. That doesn't mean it won't work. It just, that's the concern with um, putting employees on, you know, like boards or something. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's the kind of like the, one of the weirdnesses of American corporations or just corporations that are incorporated in America is that the fiduciary requirement just kind of makes a blanket obligation for the health of the company uh, versus, let's say, necessarily the health of the employee. Um, and of course, you could argue that, you know, both are intertwined. But that, I mean, could you argue that for many corporations, like by putting shareholder interests first leads to uh, putting employee interests second? Um, I mean, sure, one could argue that, but it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, typically you have to also impl- uh, put employee, if you want to be a successful company, you have to treat your employees well also. Otherwise mm-hmm. you run into a whole host of other issues. And like I said, in Clearly. this day and age, <laughs> um, most companies do want to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, because you want a productive workforce and you also want your employees to be happy. I mean, at least the companies that I deal with all want their employees to feel like they're coming to a good place to work. Um, and so you don't necessarily have, you know, the industrialization and employee abuse issues you have, like you might have had in like the 50s or 30s. Mm-hmm. Right. Existing right now. There are certainly other issues. Um but just because you're putting shareholders 
um, interests, you're looking out for that as well. Doesn't mean you're not looking out for employee interests. I don't think I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Uh, and I would add, like, an if if you're not treating your employees well, you have a huge compliance issue. You know, some True, companies yes. make the mistake of of thinking about employment issues as just labor and employment issues, but if you have a serious labor and employment issue, you have a major compliance issue. Um, and a major liability issue that you'd have to report depending on the type of company you are, whether publicly traded or um, for audit purposes. And and no one wants that. Um, aside from just wanting a happy workforce, no one wants that type of liability. So it's a huge compliance issue. And so again, it's even if you, let's take the cynical view and say companies don't care about their employees, which I don't uh, at least the ones I deal with, I don't think it's true for. Um, mm-hmm. Companies also care about compliance. And so they don't want that type of liability on their books. You know, thank you for engaging with some of the, uh, I guess, the meat and potatoes of um, labor and management. But let's go back to some of the gristle of this specific uh, lawsuit. And, you know, one thing I did want to talk about was the mention of the Cosby suite uh, in in the lawsuit. And for those who might not have been following, there was at BlizzCon, I, there, I believe it was BlizzCon 2013, there was a hotel suite in which a, a picture of Bill Cosby was, you know, often paraded around um, and there was plenty of alcohol and things like that. And the implication being, because at the time, um, while it maybe not ha- maybe it wasn't as big of a news story until um, Bill Cosby actually had to go to trial and whatnot. Um, it, there, there, there was an implication at least with it from the, from the DFEH that an environment was being fostered that was uh making light of sexual assault. Uh, what do you make of the DFEH pulling in the Kazi suite as a piece of evidence in its suit, especially when it could, I believe, could be kind of dismissed as uh, something as, oh, no, there was actually no kind of sexual connotation in this. We just thought it was uh, funny because he wears a funny sweater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'd have to look at the timing of when those things happen, right? Because the Cosby allegations are more recent, whereas yes. it seems that the Cosby suite, uh, at least from what I could gather, uh, might have happened in terms of naming it, might have happened before any of those allegations came to light. Um, and so one has to look at, okay, what was the purpose of calling it the Cosby suite or not? I've seen, I've read a number of articles saying it was just, you know, describing how the room looked or had nothing to do with the sexual assault allegations against Bill Cosby. Um, Again, this is where you have to take a step back and realize these are just allegations and then look at the facts and get down to the actual Mm -hmm. factual details of when did they call it that? When did the actual Cosby allegations come to light? Either way, Let's let's assume for a second that the allegations are true about the suite, right? Um, and this was something we, you and I were talking about before. The employment um, liability doesn't stop at the workplace. It could extend to things like industry events, as long as there's some tie to work. And so that's why you see these allegations in the DFEH complaint, mm-hmm. Um is because if the manager was engaging in this conduct with employees, then there still could be potentially liability there for the employer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I do want to also state that um, there's evidence of group chats between these employees that definitely had conversations that were very sexual in nature regarding the Cosby suite. So uh, <laughs> I do feel that um, if 
Activision Blizzard does try to argue against it, that it was more benign that uh, these group messages would likely be used as evidence against the, that claim. Um, and now- Yeah, they absolutely, to, oh. they absolutely would. Um, you know, I, I think I saw some of those messages online and assuming that there are, you know, none of them, those were doctored, then they, there would be, you know, the company would have to look at what happened. You'd have to look at whether notice was given to the company, whether the company knew about those messages or not, right? Because that's mm -hmm. another, wh whether anyone complained about it, whether it was investigated, what was done, right? right. Um, and that just goes back to, uh, you know, this, this goes back to, um, an issue that, you know, you think the workplace is the workplace. The workplace is not, um, you know, the locker room or, you know, hanging out with your friends. Um, you might think you have a good relationship with another employee and you can quote unquote make those comments. Not that those comments are ever appropriate, but those comments have no room with employees uh, and managers and so on and so forth. So obviously, if if those are true, then that's a, an issue that has to be dealt with. But the, the question becomes, what did the employer know about that? Hmm. Uh, you know, and, and regarding this case specifically, I mean, uh, can you recall any other cases within California or nationally within, I guess, tech, gaming and entertainment of this kind? Um, and if not, I mean, could this case actually set um, a lot of precedent moving forward? Um, so there's been uh, some cases, similar cases, and I believe they've been pointed out in some other sources, but the mm -hmm. DFEH not long ago did file a complaint against uh, involving the show Criminal Minds that mm. involved Disney, ABC, and CBS. That was another sexual harassment or sex discrimination case, right, involving uh, the entertainment industry. Um, and so there it was uh, clearly focused on Again, uh, you know, make in that case, Disney, it was Disney and ABC and CBS, but it was focusing on the broader entertainment industry, right? And that's where you saw the DFEH getting involved again. Um, the DFEH has also filed complaints in the tech industry, not involving sexual misconduct claims, but discrimination claims generally against um, Cisco, for example. And then you have the federal government filing claims against uh, the tech industry as well, uh, where there was discrimination against uh, based on national origin or nationality or race um, and women. So you you see government involvement to a certain extent, and it seems to be um, when they believe that there might be an industry-wide issue, mm -hmm. and then they file against a certain entity or more than one entity and get involved in that way. Um, in terms of the precedential value of this case, uh, that might come with the California Equal Pay Act um, mm. and maybe looking at arbitration agreements. Um, it would be interesting in that case, and it's just interesting from an industry-wide perspective, right, um, where the DFEH is really getting involved in the gaming and esports industry. That's where the presidential value is. Do you feel that, um, I mean, this is just one state filing the suit. I mean, do you think that uh, Texas or Georgia or even like Canada, because I know there are a bunch of game studios up there too, like, is, are you hearing rumblings of maybe similar suits being filed or is this way too speculative and way too, uh, for, uh, maybe far flung in the future to actually think about? 
Yeah, it's too early to tell uh, mm-hmm. whether other states might take similar actions, right? The, the employer, let's say the ga- let's say the gaming company in this case, would have to have some sort of tie to the state for that state to bring in a suit. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if Activision Blizzard has no employees in Texas, then obviously Texas is not going to bring any suits on behalf of the employees there because there are none. Um, and so you're limited to the states where there are actually employees or or some nexus. I mean, it gets, gets into a very complicated analysis, but there has to be some tie to the state. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is what I've always found interesting is the international nature of gaming and esports mm-hmm. and how, you know, in, in the U.S. we have pretty robust laws on sex discrimination and harassment. That's not the case in other countries necessarily. And so you get where you have a company that's international in nature and has different understandings of what discrimination or harassment are. Um, that's where it gets really interesting. Um, and that's where you have to make sure that the outside actors really understand the rules and regulations in the United States and apply that across the board. Hmm. And then lastly, let's, I guess, put on our future thinking caps. And, you know, where where do you think this suit goes from here? I mean, do you think it'll be litigated in the courts? Do you think there'll be a settlement? Uh, Do you have any predictions, anything, uh, final thoughts? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's a great question to ask. It's, it's, uh, honestly, really speculative. Like, speculative right now. The the lawsuit's so massive. I mean, most lawsuits at at this point in time take at least two to five years to go to trial, especially with the black backlog of cases from COVID mm-hmm. uh, when the courts were closed. Um, and given the fact that only about three percent of cases go to trial, I'd be shocked if this case went to trial. Um, what I foresee happening is Activision, Blizzard looking at the lawsuit and um, and the DFEH, you know, going back and forth, forth in court for some time. Um, there may be a lot of procedural or jurisdictional issues that come are dealt with in the front. And so we might not, I mean, depending on what happens, we now might not see even like a merits-based uh, motion for some time or mm-hmm. merit-based arguments. Um but it all really depends. I mean, to most cases tend to settle. Um, and so if you just look at what happens in most cases, the conventional wisdom is that this case will settle. Now, what comes to light between now and then is really what's going to be the interesting part of the case, right? Um, but you can, I, I would imagine, you know, Activision Blizzard has taken steps to investigate whether these issues uh, these issues, um, it looks like, existed and continue to exist at its company. Um, that's a wise uh, step to make. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of up in the air. Um, you'd never know what's going to happen, and there's there's so much in this lawsuit that has to be looked at and investigated and uh, thought of in terms of um, both procedurally, jurisdictionally, and on the merits that it could take some time before anything. Uh, happens. And like I said, with the backlog of cases, we're not going to see anything happen immediately. Well, I guess with that, we'll follow up with you in uh, five years. Um, uh, (laughs) Irene, thank you so much for uh, jumping on the show. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to ftwamad.com. To follow the Esports Bar Association, you can find them at Esports Bar on Twitter. You can also follow Irene's firm on Twitter at Nixon Peabody LLP. 
To follow me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at Imad on Twitter. This episode was produced by Henrique Demore and Jacob Wolf. Executive producers are Kevin Morris. With that, we'll catch you guys next week. <laughs>